Topic of our Dhamma talk tonight is uh, the inside knowledge of uh, the uh, fast arising passing way of uh, formations known in the Pali scriptural language as Udiya Bhya Jnana. And so, this is one of the insight knowledges you know, that occurs on you know, the path and uh, you know, quite a number of you have already experienced it and are even beyond it in such you know, thus uh, um, it's appropriate you know, to explain you know, what it's all about, both from a theoretical as well as uh, a practical you know, point of view. And uh, for those who have not experienced it yet, well, at least uh, it gives them some idea of uh, what might happen next in the practice. To you know, start uh, with uh, Dhammapada verse 113, you know, that's... Um, deals with this particular uh, knowledge yocha vasasatam jiva apasam udeyabhyam ekam jivitam seyo pasato udeyabhyam the English translation of this is better than a hundred years in the life of a person who does not perceive you know, the arising and uh, the dissolution of certain formations or of the five aggregates is a day just a single day in the life of one who perceives you know, the arising and dissolution of uh, the five aggregates. Now, this Satna Dhammapada verse, and there are actually a number of uh, others uh, in, you know, that can be found in the you know, Dhammapada you know, that all speak towards uh, you know, this particular you know, insight knowledge. And they all mark or highlight the importance of uh, gaining this uh, knowledge uh, um, at least for uh, a day in uh, one's life. Now, this uh, insight, certain uh, knowledge, as uh, you have uh, heard in the meantime, consists of two parts, namely a tender phase and uh, then a mature phase. And uh, the tender phase of it uh, covers what? Who knows? Yes, indeed, uh, you know, the you know, imperfections of uh, insight, and there are ten in number. And so, uh, so this uh, fourth insight knowledge consists of, of, of first or of, uh, first of uh, you know, those ten imperfections, and uh, then once a meditator you know, goes beyond you know, the imperfections and is no or well mostly is no longer under the sway of them, you know, in such a person does uh, you know, the mature phase of and from a classificatory point of view, 
when we look at uh, you know, this particular insight knowledge and uh, you know, then you know, compare it uh, with the you know, so-called uh, seven purifications, and then we find that the tender face of this fourth insight knowledge you know, is governed by the purification of knowledge and vision of what is the path and not path. So that's one you know, purification. The next one is the you know, purification of the knowledge and vision of uh, the path. And actually, the next one, or the, you know, the second you know, phase, the mature phase of the fourth insight knowledge, you know, then um, marks the beginning of uh, you know, that purification of knowledge and vision, vision of the path. And it is followed by a number of other uh, insight knowledges, which all, all the way up to you know, the knowledge of uh, you know, of anuloma, nanyana, of conformity, that then come under it. Now, during that tender phase of the knowledge of the fast arising, passing away of formations, it is said that a meditator is um, experiencing anicca, dukkha, and anatta to some extent. And then you know, the Sudhimagga, you know, on the path of purification, you know, raises the questions of the question why then does a meditator have to you know, experience? Um, the you know, three universal you know, characteristics, or, or why does a meditator have to you know, pursue the knowledge of rise and fall again? And so, you know, the answer uh, is you know, given as so, you know, follows, namely in chapter 21, you know, paragraph 2 of the Visuddhimagga, namely to observe the three characteristics. And so the characteristics of uh, Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And the knowledge of rise and fall and that uh, occurred uh, early on, and uh, that was very much uh, governed you know, by you know, the imperfections, so the tender you know, uh, knowledge of uh, you know, the arising passing of formations, was as yet you know, not capable of observing those character, three characteristics uh, in their true nature. And because it was still um, well overwhelmed or influenced by the ten imperfections. And so in the presence of the ten imperfections, the you know, three universal characteristics kind of lose you know, their, um, well, their influence or you know, their predominance. This might be a better word. And so you know, they don't quite uh, you know, stick out. Uh, they're not uh, all that predominant. And so... So the answer then you know, to you know, the question raised is you know, to <clears throat> clearly you know, see you know, the you know, three characteristics you know, but without you know, the influence of, uh, the, you know, of the ten imperfections of insight. Now, from an etymological you know, point of view, the Pali term udiya beya jnana is a compound term, and it consists of three parts. Well, yeah, three parts, or actually more than this. 
uh, jnana is knowledge and certainly then uriya is certainly one part and biya is another part and that first part uddiya we can then you know, break up even further into ud which means out in an upward direction out of like it is used in the word in the Pani verb umujanti which means to rise up out of water or something else and uh, then you know, the second part to the first compound, um, aya, is uh, a form or stems from the verb e, you know, which means uh, you know, to go. And so to rise up out of or in an, uh, an upward direction, and so to, to rise or to go out, you know, upward. And and then as for the second certain part, Bea, so you know, this consists of the prefix Bia, which means and B stands for asunder, denoting disturbance, separation or you know, destruction. And or sometimes simply down. And certainly so, you know, then the, the um, Part ayat again uh, has the same meaning as uh, mentioned uh, earlier on, so it's a form of to you know, go. So to you know, to go you know, to go down or you know, to go asunder. Hence uh, this uh, Pali expression udia bea has been you know, translated as increase and decrease, or as rise and fall, or as birth and death, as up and down or simply as arising and passing away. So Uriyabhyanyana is your knowledge of the arising and passing away. And since these formations you know, tend to, um, at the peak of the knowledge, tend to arise in a quick manner, arise and pass away in a quick manner, hence uh, that uh, adjective uh, is being added. Now, the mature you know, phase uh, has you know, some you know, very you know, distinct features certain to it. Namely, when it comes to you know, the arising of an object, no matter what the you know, physical or mental object may be, this object is not in any way getting ready to arise. It's not kind of gathering a momentum you know, to you know, then pop up. And so, and it's also not waiting at near there you know, to you know, get uh, or to arise. Likewise, once an object has disappeared, it certainly does not go to another place uh, or you know, nor to you know, gather there. But uh, rather, what happens is that an object suddenly. Uh, arises and suddenly it certainly disappears. And so basically it is one new object after another uh, that is arising and uh, passing away. 
Now, in the Bur- Burmese Sutner language, you know, this particular you know, feature of uh, you know, this knowledge of Uriya Bhyanjana you know, is certainly uh, given as Ku Pye and Ku Pye. And certainly Ku stands for a Ku, which means now, and Pye means certainly you know, to, you know, to be or to become, and Pye means certainly to you know, you know, destroy or to get destroyed. So you know, now arising, now you know, getting destroyed or you know, disappearing. Now, a further you know, really important you know, feature of you know, this certain knowledge is that a meditator usually or typically uh, experiences among the three parts, namely beginning, middle, and end, uh, a meditator experiences only two parts. And uh, those are the beginning of the object, the arising of it, and then the ending of it, the dissolution of it. Now, the Patisamida Maga, the path of discrimination, has defined this knowledge in a very succinct manner. Namely, the wisdom in contemplating the change in the change of present phenomena. So, the wisdom in contemplating the change of present phenomena. Now. Uh, the attention needs to be drawn to you know, the expression change of present uh, phenomena. And what uh, happens uh, at uh, this point in our uh, meditation practice is uh, that uh, a meditator is no longer uh, occupied uh, with you know, the you know, objects of the past nor you know, with objects of uh, you know, the future. Remember in you know, the third insight knowledge by uh, inferential knowledge from what was was happening in the present moment, a meditator then deducted uh, inferentially that what is valid or what happens in the present moment also happened in the past and will also happen in the future. Now, here, in this fourth insight knowledge, there's none of that. No, there's no uh, coming to any conclusion by inferential knowledge. But rather, the meditator's attention is fully focused on the present moment. Now, in order, in order to uh, under or to see impermanence, a meditator needs to see you know, the dissolution of an object, and so, you know, the dissolution. In order to see the dissolution of an object, well, you know, it needs to arise. So, at this particular point in the practice, both of these aspects uh, are uh, present, namely the arising of it and so, you know, the dissolution of it. Now. 
you might remember from you know, one of the earlier Dhamma talks on Anicca, uh, that's on impermanence, uh, that a meditator you know, sees you know, this impermanence in different ways. So at first, in the you know, third insight knowledge, a meditator will see an object arising, lasting for a while, maybe also changing, and then eventually disappearing. And um, this process could certainly last anything from maybe uh, at least um, at least maybe 30 seconds or a minute to several minutes. So you'd, a meditator would see a pain arising and then undergoing a number of transformations and then only after you know, maybe several minutes or so you know, would that same pain disappear. Now, in you know, the fourth insight knowledge, things become much more dynamic and barely has an object arisen, does it disappear already, or does it, uh, does it disappear? And so, you know, so you know, the middle portion of it, you know, the occurrence of or the lasting you know, aspect of it, uh, is rather you know, short and, uh, you know, from a meditator's point of view, you know, negligible, not that certainly discernible. Now, since objects are occurring um, um, at rather you know, at a rather quick speed, coming and going, uh, this um, requires uh, that our mindfulness is certainly uh, what rather uh, rather dull and certainly uh, slow, or rather quick and certainly uh, sharp quick and sharp, now that's the obvious. And however, you know, just to think, if you know, your mindfulness would possess you know, the qualities it had in the third insight knowledge, and objects would arise in quick succession, uh, as system commonly happens in the fourth insight knowledge, well, most likely, you know, as a meditator, you wouldn't be able to keep up uh, with the flow of uh, events. And so, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the meditation practice uh, unfolds in such a way that uh, you know, the observing mind and uh, you know, the necessary accompanying mental states are you know, always up to the mark and so, you know, up to the mark to you know, keep up with you know, what is happening in the practice. To give you another you know, example, um, at an earlier point, let's say during the first and uh, second insight knowledge, you know, the mind is, uh, or objects are you know, still very coarse. And so is you know, the observing and uh, knowing mind. However, you know, when our practice you know, gradually moves into the third insight knowledge, and in particular the part about anatta, you know, the absence of a self, where you know, the objects tend to become rather refined, well, by then the mind uh, is already in a better shape, and it's gradually you know, developing towards uh, you know, well, increasing you know, refinement. And 
So all these necessary changes of mindfulness and uh, you know, the other you know, relevant mental factors are gradually you know, taking place at so, you know, just at the right certain uh, time. Now, when a meditator uh, sees how the formations are in a a very direct manner and clear-cut manner, sees how formations keep coming and going, appearing and disappearing, then um, this certainly is rather uh, inspiring. The meditator feels encouraged by this and certainly will then want to proceed with his or her meditation practice with greater determination. And will want to take the practice all the way to its very end, to its goal. Now, as explained earlier on, during the tender phase of the fourth insight knowledge of the fast arising passing away formations, the three characteristics weren't all that clear because they were under the influence or meditator was under the influence of the the ten imperfections of insight. Now, during this mature phase, you know, things change, and a meditator you know, then will clearly or will understand you know, the the thing that is impermanent plus the characteristic of impermanence, the thing that is suffering or unsatisfactory and the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness and then the thing that is lacking itself and the characteristic of non-self. So the objects or the things that are impermanent, unsatisfactory, lacking a self, are, of course, certainly the objects of the five aggregates. And the characteristic of impermanence is that of, uh, well, arising and passing, and passing away. And the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness is that of oppression through rise and fall, and the characteristic of non-self is the insusceptibility to the exercise of power. So we can, objects are not happening according to our wishes, our will, but rather according to conditions. Now, when a meditator experiences this insight of 
for you know the fast rising passing away of formations and then he is well advised to stay with it for some time and to see this arising and passing away of formations with regard to as many objects as possible so not just the rise and fall of the abdomen but also with regard to various kinds of sensations in the body, pains and aches and also with regard to the mental factors and with regard to the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching process and thinking process and also in the walking meditation. And so at first, this may seem like an unnecessary exercise. However, this will prepare the mind for what will happen next. And so it is in connection with this Dhamma delight and also seeing the arising and passing of formations that the Buddha has spoken the following verse as is recorded in Dhammapada verse 373 the bhikkhu or bhikkhuni male or female meditator who goes into seclusion to meditate whose mind is tranquil who clearly perceives the Dhamma experiences a joy which transcends that of ordinary men and women. Now, when one undertakes this certain of the past practice, one then will also sooner or later understand and as we've discussed already earlier on as when talking about the three universal characteristics the thing that covers up impermanence is continuity and the thing that covers up unsatisfactoriness is or that lies in the change of certain postures and then what covers up the characteristic of non-self is certain compactness and so it is uh, well the continuity and but also the you know, compactness that so plus even the unsatisfactory part you know, that you know, play a vital role you know, during this insight knowledge namely Earlier on, a meditator saw you know, formations, uh, usual, like, formations like the rise and fall of the uh, abdomen as one continuous movement. Or a meditator you know, back then you know, saw the pain as one solid, compact certain object. Now, this then you know, changes. If one does not certain, you know, change one's certain posture, and with the deepening of one's mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, a meditator gradually sees how 
um, the rising and falling movement of uh, the abdomen actually consists of a number, if not many, tiny, you know, tiny such uh, rising movements, and one after another. And the, the pain that seemed all that certain solid you know, then breaks up or maybe the witness as certain breaking up into many parts or you know, particles. And so when a meditator you know, keeps uh, observing or investigating into what actually is occurring in the body and in the mind and observing various kinds of bodily sensations and various kinds of mental states well then it becomes pretty obvious that there is no self and so all we have are some basic ultimate categories which well, occur in different certain compositions. Now, when one observes certain very carefully, one might find that even the observing mind itself, so the mindfulness, is not continuous, but rather consists of a series of moments of mindfulness one after another. So, one moment of mindfulness will then see or observe one segment of a rising movement, then the next moment of mindfulness will see the next segment of the rising movement of the abdomen and so on and so forth. And certainly so the arising of one segment goes together, coincides with the arising of that one moment of mindfulness. And the dissolution of both of them, namely the segment of the rising and the corresponding mindfulness, then also happens simultaneously. So. Uh, what this is pointing at is uh, another uh, particular feature of uh, this fourth insight knowledge, namely uh, that the mind and uh, the object observed uh, work together really, uh, really well. And so, uh, there is no lagging behind of uh, the, uh, the mindfulness. And so as soon as an object arises, the observing and knowing mind is right there. And this is very different from what we experience as meditators in the earlier insight knowledges. So earlier on, it's quite it's a common, familiar experience that an object arises, and then only after quite some time, and only after the thinking subsides to some some extent or degree you know, that you know, the mindfulness then you know, actually turns towards you know, the object. And also back then 
It's not that uncommon you know, for a meditator's mind, observing and knowing mind, to slip off you know, the object. So, not to get it you know, right, not to penetrate uh, uh, into the center of it. Now, here during the fourth insight knowledge, you know, the mindfulness is rather you know, well developed. It's certain quick, it's sharp, and you know, very you know, dynamic and sort of on you know, target if you uh, like to. Now, earlier on, it uh, was mentioned uh, that there are, to any object, whatever the object may be, three parts, namely its beginning, its middle, and its uh, end, or we can say um, its uh, birth, its decay, and its uh, death. The Pali scriptural terms for these uh, three are upada, titi, and banga. And so out of these three parts in the fourth insight knowledge, the beginning, upada, and the ending or the dissolution of an object, banga, are predominant, are obvious. Whereas the middle portion, titi, isn't all that clear. It's not that it's not there, but it's just extremely short. And so, maybe to add at this point that in terms of the duration of the arising passing of one object, well, it's something in the range of just a few moments or a few seconds, and not more than that. And when listening to or meditators' reports, then one has to, well, Ask uh, how long uh, the uh, how long one object uh, would uh, typically last. Is this uh, rather a matter of several uh, several minutes, or a matter of just a few moments or a few uh, seconds? So if it's just a few seconds, then it's quite likely you know, that it's an, an experience that fits into the fourth insight knowledge. Sometimes meditators you know, they think. They're experiencing the arising of an object, and then it lasts for a minute or two, and then it disappears, and then they think, oh, this is already the peak of the fourth insight knowledge, when, of course, it's not not up to that level yet. Now, the fourth insight knowledge of uh, the the fast arising passing away of uh, formations marks kind of a a major, um, well, this point in or face in our our, insight uh, meditation. And so... 
it is a knowledge that, uh, uh, as uh, mentioned before, is uh, rather uh, rewarding and also rather uh, inspiring. And subjectively, meditators feel you know, quite satisfied with it. They're quite satisfied with their own meditation, and you know, what contributes to this is you know, the clarity of uh, you know, the experiences. The observing mind you know, itself you know, tends to be you know, rather clear, and uh, the objects observed too you know, tend to be clear, if not certain crystal clear. So no wonder you know, that the meditators consider this as certain good certain meditation practice. And so, so and it's very different as as we've seen already from experiences during the earlier insight knowledges which were, as you will recall, were oftentimes quite labored, difficult, and certainly full of troubles. Now, when one experiences this insight knowledge, one you know, feels um, you know, well encouraged to go on with uh, you know, the practice. And so indeed, you know, this then provides you know, the, you know, the momentum you know, to pursue you know, the meditation further. Now, during a retreat, it's really good and if the retreat isn't uh, too short, and uh, so instead it is uh, somewhat uh, longer than uh, 10 days, because this certainly uh, simply uh, gives uh, meditators a chance uh, to uh, get at least to this certain uh, fourth uh, insight knowledge, if not uh, even further. And so, um, and then when the or when the retreat comes to an end, uh, then meditators feel uh, quite certainly uh, satisfied with their retreat, and uh, they can. Leave you know, the you know, retreat with a positive uh, note. Otherwise, you know, if, uh, as mentioned during one of the earlier Dhamma talks, you know, if one ends in dukkha, one in, in dukkha and jnana, you know, then one might not feel you know, like being carrying on. Now. In the context of you know, this fourth you know, inside knowledge, but also you know, later on in the practice, it's helpful you know, to you know about you know, the fourfold uh, compactness. The Pani technical term for this is Ghana, and you know, the word is spelled G-H-A-N-A, and you know, it consists of four or uh, it consists of four kinds, namely compact as a continuity, Santatikana, then compactness as a mass, Samuhagana, then compactness as a function, Kichagana, and compactness as an object, Aramnagana. So, and at first, objects seem you know, to be you know, compact in these four different uh, ways. 
and uh, objects of the practice in, uh, in general. However, you know, this then uh, changes. Now, compactness as a continuity we've discussed already. While you know, observing objects, uh, then gradually we find uh, that they're breaking up uh, into parts, into particles, into segments, and so on. And so, so that then dissolves or dispels uh, you know, this wrongful perception as uh, compactness uh, uh, as a continuity. Now, as for the second one, compactness as a mass, a muha and a gana. Now, sometimes we'll experience an object uh, you know, like uh, you know, like a pain. You know, there's maybe a mass of hardness and. So, uh, and it seems rather solid, rather uh, compact. And so then, when we go deeper into it, you know, we see how this mass of hardness you know, and then gradually uh, breaks up. And then, uh, when it comes to the third, compactness as a function, this is somewhat more uh, difficult you know, to explain and to understand. Um, as a meditator goes through the different insight knowledges, he or she will sooner or later understand that each and every insight knowledge performs a certain function. And so, for instance, the function of impermanence is to dispel or abandon the wrongful perception of as permanence, as permanent. And so, like, and then you know, the function of dukkha is to dispel the wrongful perception as uh, you know, leading to or conducive to pleasure or happiness. And and so, as one's practice later on might be you know, moving up and down a little bit, so you know, the so-called yo-yo effect that might uh, take place. For a while, one develops one's practice; it uh, progresses, it progresses, it ascends, and then maybe owing to a lapse in one's mindfulness, then one's practice drops off. And this drop sometimes may involve several insight knowledges. So if this happens several times in a row, gradually a meditator becomes familiar with the different insight knowledges and then will also understand, oh, this particular knowledge that I'm in right now usually performs such and such a function. And then as the practice moves on, the meditator kind of assumes or can predict that the next insight knowledge will occur in a certain way. So the practice becomes somewhat predictable owing to more and more experience. And then comes the big surprise. And it comes with the so-called, uh, well, if you like, you know, uh, with the you know, destruction of this compactness as a function. And the way I like to compare this is you know, to the so-called chaos button in, uh, in computers. 
Now, not every computer will have a current chaos button, but uh, as I've read in some newspaper article, you know, like these highly sophisticated computers used on spy planes uh, have such a function. Namely, for you know, the case you know, that the spy plane you know, gets you know, shot down or you know, is forced to land somewhere uh, in an enemy country. And so as a way of uh, preventing that all the you know, highly sensitive uh, information that has been gathered over you know, probably you know, you know, longer periods, you know, so to prevent that this information gets into the you know, hands of uh, you know, you know, the enemy, you know, well these certain computers have a so-called chaos button. And so, you know, what the chaos button do, does is when one presses it, it deletes all you know, the information on, uh, on the computer. So, when a meditator experiences one of the you know, somewhat higher insight knowledges, you know, there is a phase where everything, uh, all objects rising and falling and so on and so forth, you know, seem um, as or, or manifest in a rather chaotic uh, manner. And to you know, exemplify this, so you'll be looking at the you know, rising and falling, and then let's say one rising, and at first it's uh, it, well, yeah, it takes a quick start, and then it slows down, and then it's hard, and then next moment it's soft, and then uh, it's tight, and then it's uh, relaxed, and then you know, some warmth is there, and then some cold is there. So it's all over the place. And so the meditator usually loses uh, you know, the you know, bearings at you know, this point because nothing fits uh, you know, the ordinary uh, with the ordinary experience anymore or the ordinary patterns uh, anymore. And so it is at this point in the practice you know, that and this compactness as a function well breaks up and is no longer valid. So, to some extent, you know, the practice is predictable, but uh, then uh, at certain points, uh, again, it's uh, unpredictable. Now, compactness as an object you know, means, aramnagana in the Pali language, means you know, that at first an object like a pain may seem rather solid, rather compact. However, upon a closer you know, observation, frequent observation, this pain and then that would be seen as certain breaking, breaking up into, or maybe spreading out over a larger area, and moving here, moving there, and then, then an area of pain may be seen as consisting of many tiny little pain points, and these then might be seen as coming and going. So when that happens, the compactness as an object uh, is certainly no longer uh, valid. And so 
as part of uh, this process of uh, the uh, dissolution of or breaking up of the compactness in various senses, uh, there is another uh, compactness that breaks up. And the question to you, what might this be? And some of you have already experienced and reported it. In the body, yes, and in which sense? Just, um, it's just parts, and rather than being one solid ah. item. Yes. Just pieces of observation, really. Yes. And, Alan, what about something of the so called boundary or contour of the body? Is that still, uh, is it still clearly seen or not? No more. Is absolutely correct. Excellent. Indeed, now what we have at this point is that a certain process comes to its certain peak, namely the process, the transition from conventional or conceptual reality to ultimate reality. And it is a process that is well known and well described in the meditation practice. Now, the Venera Mahasi side of Burma says in this connection, when the concept is seen, the ultimate reality is not seen. When the ultimate reality is seen, the concept is no longer seen. Um, now, to give you one you know, very simple, simplistic uh, uh, example to start with. Namely, at the very, very outset of our mentation practice. So please think back to day one. You've just arrived and you're settling in and you've heard the instructions, observe rising and falling, and then you try your best and then as the rising or as the abdomen expands, well, you think of a flower. A flower blossoming. And then as the abdomen well contracts, you think of that same flower as contracting. So, blossoming contracting. And so you're totally hooked to this picture or concept of uh, the flower blossoming and uh, contracting. Or if you don't like this example, and I can also choose another one, namely that of a balloon. A balloon, so the rising movement of the abdomen is oftentimes uh, uh, described uh, as uh, it is like a balloon that is inflating and the falling movement is like a balloon that is uh, deflating. And so a meditator, very oftentimes a beginning meditator is fascinated with this concept and it seems to describe so nicely what is going on that the meditator is not going any deeper than this. And it's not really knowing the predominant sensations that are occurring in the rising movement and in the falling movement. So sensations like, as you all know by now, tension, stiffness, tightness and the rising and uh, maybe you know, a sense of relaxation, contraction, and a number of other sensations in the falling movement. So, um, there's in in the con in, in this certain context, there is another you know, development, namely 
the shape or form of an object, and this includes certainly the boundary or contour of the body, this is said to be just a concept. The mind is certainly make easy, uh, greatly making use of concepts, uh, apparently in order to simplify uh, uh, the mental operations. And so, when we at first sit in meditation with eyes closed, we will have a pretty definite sense of where our, or, yeah, where our body ends and where you know, the uh, air around it certainly starts. And so we think this is absolutely normal. That's the way it's certainly supposed to be. And so then... Um, as uh, we continue with our meditation practice, we uh, sooner or later realize that uh, at times that shape or form of the body uh, is somewhat out of whack. And uh, sometimes, you know, some meditators are reporting this rather, um, in a rather vivid manner, even though both hands are placed on the lap, it seems as if one arm is totally deformed, maybe something like this, and pointing into a different certain direction. However, the meditator knows that he and she didn't place the arm in that certain way. And so something, something is funny here. And, so, and a brand new a greenhorn meditator, so to speak, might even get a little bit scared. What is going to happen with me? Am I going to end up deformed when I leave this retreat? And not not just you know, deformation of the you know, the arms. Uh, in a worst case, sometimes meditators say. They sit in meditation and you know, they observe uh, you know, really, you know, really well and in a concentrated manner. And then it seems as if one leg is cut off. So, really as if with an axe cut off. So, only a stump of it is uh, left. So, if you have this kind of an impression, you know, then good luck. And so at least four or five minutes or ten minutes will you be wondering what is going on on here in my practice. And so, and so uh, it's for these kind of uh, cases that a meditation teacher needs to explain you know, what is happening. So these so-called deformations or uh, even losing parts of uh, one's uh, body, limbs of uh, the body, seemingly, uh, is part of the process of the transition from conceptual reality to ultimate reality. And when a meditator is um, approaching the fifth insight knowledge, which is the knowledge of dissolution, and which is the knowledge that follows the knowledge of the you know, the fast arising passing away of formations, then um, now, the you know, concept of a shape or form of the body is certainly pretty much gone. And so, 
there may be, um, or it's uh, that's the you know, the last point where uh, it uh, you know, then finally uh, breaks up all uh, all together. So before it's just a prelude uh, over several insight knowledges. Sometimes already starting with the first insight knowledge and then you know, reaching its uh, maximum uh, in you know, the fifth insight knowledge. And so usually in the fifth insight knowledge. Um, meditators no longer find a boundary, a clear kind of boundary or shape or form into the body. And an amazing thing happens. A meditator will say, I can, well, I can bet on it and that's um, or testify to it you know, that you know, a pain is somewhere you know, and is, you know, the pain is clearly experienced but the meditator no longer is in a position to say whether it's in the right leg or left leg or maybe uh, even in the torso so the ability to locate a sensation falls away and so it is at this point uh, that um, a meditator needs to um, be instructed you know, to simply just go for the bare you know, sensation even if uh, you know, one can no longer locate it uh, or um, locate it. And uh, so, in, in this case, if the pain is there, then just you know, focus on the pain itself and so, you know, don't worry you know, you know, trying to you know, find out you know, where you know, the pain is you know, located at. Now, that, to many meditators, is quite a dramatic shift in uh, events. And actually, from this point onwards, uh, for the most part, the shape or form of the body is then no longer clear. So the concept simply has fallen away. And the... To add this for further clarification, the pain itself or some other predominant sensation is considered to be ultimate reality because this is what is truly uh, existing. You're not imagining the pain that is there. No, you're not uh, conjuring it up. But uh, it arises and uh, uh, even... It's there at the beginning of the practice, and it may be experienced during the you know, middle phase of the practice, and a pain that may you know, then arise also towards the end of the practice. So that's uh, uh, a true uh, reality. Now, this uh, fourth insight knowledge, um, its tender phase as well as certain mature phase, you know, has been you know, described in you know, different ways, you know, with different certain you know, illustrations, and one of them is you know, to you know, bring across the short-lived nature of an object. You know, it's said you know, the practice or you know, objects are like dew drops at sunrise so obviously they don't last too long or even better more 
word you know, more realistic, like bubbles uh, on water. So maybe when it uh, rains, a raindrop falls onto a surface of water, and uh, then uh, you know, you know, raindrop then forms uh, or causes a bubble, and that bubble you know, then you know, pops. Or another you know, rather um, convincing example is when you draw with the, the help of a stick, when you draw a line on the surface of water, then what will happen? It flows back in. Huh? It flows back in right yes, right. It uh, disappears. It won't last. And so. Uh, the same thing you know, goes you know, when you know, lightning strikes. You know, this is uh, the, uh, a rather short-lived uh, experience. And so to you know, bring across you know, the you know, idea that certain formations seem rather continuous or rather compact, uh, another illustration uh, is given, namely uh, that of the wheel of whirling you know, firebrand. So, uh, actually, when you in a circus or so, when you see you know, such an event, then it seems like one uh, round certain uh, flame. But in actuality, it's not that. But rather, it consists it consists of a wheel you know, that has in some spots some flames, and the wheel you know, turns certainly very quickly to then create the impression of uh, a circle of uh, fire, a continuous circle of for fire. Now, another you know, a highly interesting and telling feature in the context of you know, the fourth insight knowledge regarding objects is you know, that um, of uh, the location of an object and certainly uh, the sequence of uh, objects. So, are you experiencing an object that is arising and then moving around and uh, in various uh, ways and then disappearing in a different spot? This will be one option. Or are you experiencing an object that is occurring in one spot and it's disappearing in exactly the same spot? So two options here. And so then another criterion is namely the sequence of objects. Are you experiencing one object that is lasting for a while, and while you're observing it, another more predominant object occurs, and before the first object has disappeared, the attention moves on to the second object. And so and then while you're observing the second object, and it's still going on, a third, more predominant object arises and calls your attention. So at that point, your objects are kind of overlapping. So this is one case, and the other case is you know, the occurrence of objects in a linear fashion, one object after another. So an object arises, may last for a while, and so, or, or less, and so, then disappears. And all 
only after it has disappeared does the next object occur. So in the case of the fourth insight knowledge, and it's usually you know, that objects arise in one spot and then do what? Who knows? Occur in one spot and, and do they move around and then disappear or do they disappear in the same spot? in the same spot. They disappear in the same spot, quite, quite correct. And uh, in terms of sequence, you know, in the fourth insight knowledge, it's the sequence, uh, you know, rather, uh, the sequence of overlapping objects, or is it a, you know, a linear sequence of objects, one after another? Who knows? The linear, yes, is right. And so, so those are two you know, small, you know, two small you know, you know, criteria that oftentimes go unnoticed. But once you know them, uh, it's really helpful you know, to you know, understand what is going on in one's own you know, meditation practice. And with this, you have uh, a tool to, you know, to use in you know, the future. Now, the Venerable Mahasi Sado points out, and this is obvious, that it is during the fourth insight knowledge that the enlightenment factors come to predominance. And it's not that the enlightenment factors like mindfulness, investigation of states, and effort, and joy, and then tranquility, and certain concentration, and equanimity, that these mental factors don't exist in the mind. This is not the case. They are latent in the stream of consciousness. However, at the very outset of our meditation practice, they are kind of, are pretty weak. And so they need to be developed. And you know, so during the fourth insight knowledge, uh, in particular you know, during the you know, tender phase of the imperfections, you know, the enlightenment factors uh, become uh, quite uh, obvious you know, to a meditator. And then from that point onwards, you know, do they develop further? Sometimes, you know, not being all that predominant, but later on during the higher insight knowledges, especially you know, the knowledge of reobservation and in particular the knowledge of uh, uh, equanimity about formations, will these enlightenment factors become very strong and uh, then also gradually uh, well balanced. Now, it is certainly said that when a meditator reaches this point in his or her meditation practice, so the fourth insight knowledge, and then continues to practice under a skilled teacher, then he or she is almost assured to gain stream entry in this very life. 
So it's indeed a major you know, phase in, in, in the meditation and so once one gets this far you know, one shouldn't uh, you know, just drop the meditation practice and uh, uh, you know, turn you know, one's back on it but rather uh, continue. And so, you know, usually you know, it is also at this point you know, in you know, the meditation that the so-called five limbs of striving, the Padanyanga uh, in, in the Pali scripture language consisting of faith, of good health and sincerity and energy and wisdom are you know, present. Now, during this certain fourth insight knowledge, the mind overall tends to be, what do you think, more on the unwholesome side or more on the wholesome side? Uh, wholesome, yes indeed. So plenty of wholesome mental states arise and certain faith will be there, equanimity will be there, and certain some tranquility will be there, and concentration will be strong, and so on and so forth. Now, this then means that the mind is uh, relatively you know, purified of uh, uh, impurities. And the commentary says that uh, owing to the purification of the mind uh, arises a purification of the blood. So the blood that is going through um, the entire body and the blood, the purified blood that then permeates the entire body and all the different body organs will then provide those same organs with fresh and purified blood. And if a meditator, a person, uh, happens to suffer from some uh, illness um, and it evolves in a certain you know, bodily organ, then um, reaching this fourth insight knowledge may make a big difference. And certainly so unhealthy you know, unhealthy tissue and blood and what not um, you know, then gets replaced by you know, highly purified certain blood and you know, this is supposed to lead certainly to an improvement in the one's health. Now there have been plenty of such cases and such cases recorded in a booklet which the Venerable Mahasi Sayada initiated called Dhamma Therapy and this Dhamma therapy or Dhamma cures, if you like, to uh, occur at this point in the practice, but also during the, let's say, 10th or more so, uh, 11th insight knowledge, the knowledge of uh, equanimity about certain formations. And what uh, meditators do uh, or report quite frequently is an improvement of 
for their, their senses, namely improvement of the eyesight, improvement of the hearing ability to hear, and so or hearing sensitivity, and you know, then smelling sensitivity, and uh, tasting and touching you know, sensitivity. So now those are benefits, side benefits, benefits that come with the practice. Now, as with uh, you know, the imperfections of insight, but uh, no, more so even you know, during you know, this uh, mature phase of uh, you know, the you know, knowledge of the fast arising and passing way of formations, when a meditator sees uh, how um, quick you know, the mind can operate, and so how positive and wholesome it can be, you know, this then gives a meditator an idea of the potential uh, of uh, you know, the mind, or the potential of developing you know, the mind. So, when one doesn't meditate, one doesn't really realize you know, the potential of the mind. And one just accepts it as it is, as dull and sluggish and uh, you know, unruly, as it uh, usually tends to, to be. And we just think that's normal, and uh, why do something about it? But, as a meditator, you know, we start seeing, um, well, the mind from, you know, from a different you know, perspective, so we learn as we go along, and so, you know, then you know, this kind of opens up new you know, avenues. And so, you know, one should, so by all means, pursue you know, those you know, or, or pursue you know, that further development of uh, the mind. Now, there are two inside knowledges that are somewhat similar in nature. And those two are the fourth insight knowledge, so the knowledge of the fast arising, passing away of formations, and which other one? The eleventh. The eleventh, yes, is correct. Now, the knowledge of uh, equanimity about formations. And uh, uh, however, they are not exactly the same. And so, which one do you think is better? <laughs> uh, well, the second one. <laughs> and, so, uh, and then, Nicola, what do you think? Which one is more refined? The fourth one or the eleventh one? Or oh, you're just guessing. <laughs> you must be more than guessing. <laughs> and... So, now, there is a short passage somewhere in the text which speaks of stagnation. It's actually a Vipassana riddle, the stagnation within, and what was the other one? Um, yeah, well, stagnation within. And so, now this happens when a meditator experiences these uh, you know, the imperfections of insight. At first, uh, as uh, you know, we've seen you know, by now, you know, they seem rather appealing, attractive. However, if one gets caught up in them, you know, then the practice will stagnate. 
And it is at this point that a meditator is encouraged to use what is known as strong mindfulness or strong vipassana, balawa vipassana. And all of this is said in in the context of the five ways of nourishing nourishment and nourishment of the practice. So, when one experiences those imperfections, one should not get caught up in them, but rather kind of boost one's effort and boost one's mindfulness and go beyond them. Now, when it comes to the experience of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or any other predominant object, there are different levels of experience to it. So, as mentioned earlier on, at the very beginning of our meditation, we can see the rising and falling in a very conceptual manner, namely, as that famous balloon being inflated and or inflating and deflating. And um, then later on we may discover some of its certain specific sensations and uh, then later on we may see it as uh, arising and lasting for a while and then passing away and again different sensations are involved in this and then as we are going along we may also see the rising and falling movement uh, in a segmented way so it's not just one continuous movement but segmented and then as our practice now gets even stronger and deeper, we might even see within one single segment, we might certainly discover even more details. And so it may occur, but please, this is not for everyone right now, and maybe later on, one might then see within one uh, rising and run one rising movement uh, all three uh, characteristics of anicca dukkha and anatta or in one maybe one sees one segment and uh, this segment is predominantly anicca so it's impermanent one sees the changing nature of it when one goes deeper into this then one might realize ah there's some dukkha aspect there and one might also see oh there's an anatta aspect there so and one might see even more of the anicca aspect so according to that or very much in line with Mandelbrot's fractal theory if we take one piece out of the rising movement or falling movement or a pain or whatever other object and then go deeper into it we might make some new discoveries I'm just saying this for general knowledge for you to explore when the time is ripe now during this particular insight knowledge 
as we've seen already, the mind easily falls on the you know, predominant object without missing it. And as the Venerable Sadhu Pandita you know, likes to point out, at this certain you know, point, you know, no particular aiming is necessary. The mind is already you know, well skilled. Um, that certainly the, or the observing mind is already well skilled so then just by directing it towards an object it will be uh, it will land right on that uh, object and so, so without going astray and um, furthermore, you know, during this phase in the you know, in our meditation practice, the sitting posture tends to be how rather slouched and uh, difficult to uphold so, or to, to you know, maintain upright or easy, straight. What do you think? Or easy, yes, and uh, easy to keep straight. Uh, the yes is certainly uh, correct. So the sitting posture will be upright and uh, it will be in most cases relaxed and uh, it will be easy to maintain uh, this posture. So not much uh, effort is uh, required. And so on top of this, so from a practical point of view, meditators also find themselves uh, easily sitting you know, for you know, two, sometimes even you know, three hours non-stop. And what previously seemed like an, uh, something impossible, now you know, when one's practice has uh, uh, matured, you know, becomes uh, you know, a very natural you know, thing to do. And when it happens, uh, not like this... <coughs> And then one should make good use of this particular condition and just sit for longer stretches. Now, this then brings us to the end of tonight's Dhamma talk. And let me conclude. May and those of you who have not yet reached uh, you know, this you know, particular you know, phase in the meditation practice, may you gain it certainly uh, quickly and uh, experience it you know, comprehensively, fully, and certainly uh, then may all of you, you know, continue you know, with feel inspired and certainly determined uh, you know, to continue with your meditation practice, and may you know, the meditation of or the insight meditation. Lead Lead you eventually to you know, the realization of uh, you know, well um, the peace of nibbana you know, through the attainment of stream entry. Uh, well, hopefully still during this retreat, otherwise during this very life. <laughs> and so you know, this is it. <laughs> So let's hear your questions if you have any. Yes, uh, who's that, John? Yes. Why does our sense of sight seem so much more solid than the other senses? The sense of sign? No, 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 no. Yeah, this is uh, for the time being. It may just appear that way. Yeah, but uh, well, that's what I'm asking. Why does it? 
appear to be more solid than the other. I mean, I take it sight if you could, if you were mindful enough, sight would appear like a movie film, the separate frames that we are seeing at a high speed. It seems like there's, that it's a solid thing that really mm-hmm. isn't. So, John, are you asking this certain question based on your own experience? Do you Pardon me? Yes, at another retreat. Oh, during another retreat. Oh, good. So it seems that we, when you, when you see the rising and falling, it seems easier with some of the other senses than uh-huh. with the sense of sight. Uh-huh. So there's something that makes us. So all I'm asking is why, is, uh, why but is I don't uh, at all. I don't uh, necessarily agree with this because when mindfulness is well developed and meditators clearly seeing the dissolution of the formations, then or of rising, falling, the other objects, then frequently a meditator will also say that looking at some tangible object or material object, it seems or it's seen as just like you've described a series of slides of still frames coming, going, coming, going, coming, going. And so, so it creates the impression of, uh, of, of a continuity in the scene, but in actuality it's not the case. And so it's not, uh, it's not so uncommon for the meditators to see this and to report this. So you think that the sight is just as easy to See the rising of any of the other stuff? Yeah, yeah. And you know, as mentioned in one of the earlier Dhamma talks, I think on you know, on wisdom, uh, there's a short section on it. And so, you know, see, usually you know, the way it happens is we develop our practice you know, by using the you know, primary object. So we see some new development first in the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. And so, you know, then gradually you know, we start seeing other other objects in the same light and so including even during the walking meditation or sometimes it could be the latest development first is uh, uh, realized in the walking meditation and then gradually uh, it also comes up uh, in the sitting meditation. No. So if you were to, mm, you know, just you know, f- more frequently you know, pay attention to you know, the seeing process itself, you know, then most likely you'll be you know, seeing just what you've described in, or what you've experienced uh, during an earlier retreat. Okay, it just seems more difficult to me. Mm. Try and try it a couple of times. Let's say after after good sitting. And then, then just maybe open your eyes and uh, you know, focus, uh, focus on some, you know, some object uh, and then see what happens. Okay. You, know, you could take the Buddha statue up here or you know, whatever you like. Okay. Uh, no. And some meditators you know, even go to the extent of uh, reporting, you know, seeing some image, a mental image arising uh, in the mind and certainly then you know, seeing that image itself as coming, going, coming, going. I don't know. So then, um, what's uh, next? Uh, yes, uh, Cindy. Once the mind drops 
conceptualization, does that does, does it go back eventually once you do the retreat? <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> if you gain if you gain stream energy, is that one does that also does it go back to it? Oh right. Yeah, so let's say if you um, after a retreat like this, 20 days, so you know, when you go back and so, you, know, you haven't you know, haven't gained you know, the path, you know, then it's you know, most likely. And let's say at home you're not practicing that much, you know, then gradually over you know over several weeks, you know, the world is certainly coming back together. Things are becoming solid again. No. So then you'll have your solid world again. Um, but um, if, uh, now let's say, you, know, you were to you know, gain you know, you know, the perception of the Dhamma, uh, and so then you do a fair amount of daily practice, and your practice you know, then is uh, maybe in the fifth insight knowledge and higher, you know, then uh, you'd be walking around with a, you know, without a boundary. <laughs> it's still functioning. No, you're welcome. So, Alan, you had a question. Yes, um, you were talking about the there are four levels of, of realization. Yes. The, um, the first one is you know the stream entrant and then the once returner. Yes. Those those two will be coming back. Yes. And the first one maybe no more than seven times. Yes, year. right. Okay, so at any given time, some of those people are, are on the planet somewhere. Yeah, right. So I have some questions about these people. Uh. <laughs> First of all, do, do they know who they are? Would a master or an arhat know who they are? Are they likely to be monks and nuns, or are they teachers and plumbers? <laughs> and then one last question is, um, if... Uh, you know, sometimes there are people who just become spontaneously realized. I mean, something like, uh, I think Ramana Maharshi, you know, he was 18 years old and he went into his uncle's study and just became realized. And he'd never been, he'd never practiced and didn't really care about religion before then. Is it likely that he and people like him are among that set of people who, are, who have returned? Probably. Very much so. Oh, so, uh, to any realization uh, that has taken during a previous certain existence uh, will have a tremendous uh, influence on what happens you know, during the present existence. You know? And so, there are, you know, for instance, these four ways or four modes of progress. You know? And uh, so, um, painful and slow progress, painful and quick progress, and then um, pleasant and slow progress, and pleasant and quick progress. And so, people who've practiced before and even realized during a previous existence you know, are likely you know, to you know, uh, regain the Dhamma in a very short period of time, a shorter period of time than an average person would. You know? And so, 
Well, I guess it would be fair to assume you know, that they'll you know, be born or that they'll find you know, themselves in you know, circumstances that uh, are you know, that lead to you know, or conducive to practice. And there is actually, and I'm remembering this uh, just now, there is a Pani term for, uh, for you know, this, namely innate wisdom. No? A person is born with uh, um, a rather highly developed uh, you know, level of wisdom accompanied by you know, a mind that is mostly governed by aloba, um, adosa, amoha. So non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So the mind to start with is already rather pure. And um, I guess it will be fair to assume that such people um, will be naturally drawn to meditation at an early point and just do it and have no difficulty with it. I remember having heard of uh, some uh, well, Western or Caucasian nun who, who just reflected on life, human, human existence, and she knew she wanted to be a nun and nothing else. And so you know, she you know, went in search of uh, uh, places for this. I know. And she became a nun with uh, Achan Sumedo uh, at an early, you know, early age in, uh, in her life. You know. And you know, then there are you know, others who you know, just uh, take, uh, take longer, you know, longer time until you know, they kind of uh, uh, well, um, you know, see some suffering in life, at least enough to, you know, to somewhat wake up. And no. Uh, so there's that. And uh, um, there is one category of uh, stream angels. Uh, there are three, you know, three different categories. And uh, one is said you know, to be born into a good family. So a family that uh, you know, then um, promotes an, you know, a life, you know, an ethical or life of ethical conduct and uh, a life of meditation and whatnot. Well, just um, I remember one, you know, the one case. Uh, actually, so from the Tibetan tradition. Oh, um, Minjur Rinpoche, who, as a as a youngster, maybe twelve, thirteen years of age, uh, demanded you know, or asked. Yeah, that he be uh, included for uh, the f- first uh, uh, three-year retreat. And so the retreat master at the time uh, first refused, and then 
you know, Minju Rinpoche you know, asked his uh, relative, who was uh, somewhere you know, a higher placed up, or a higher placed person, and so, you know, then with his help, uh, he managed to um, get into that first uh, three-year retreat, and uh, apparently did so well in it you know, that the uh, retreat master said, oh, "Okay, for the next retreat, you'll be the retreat master." And he was still you know, very young. Uh, no. So there are, you know, there are some you know, talent or, or you know, gifted you know, people around. Oh, and then you know, I remember a young, um, a young girl in Burma, and some, uh, what was it? She's alive. She later on became a nun, and her introduction to meditation was as follows. Some friends or relatives of the family came, and then she, um, I guess she was at home or so, and it was like a farm-like setting, and then one of the relatives said, well, to the girl, why don't you, why don't you meditate a little bit? If you meditate, I'll give you some candies. And then she said, okay, I'll, I'll meditate. And so she started sitting. And so, you know, then while she was meditating, you know, the other family members you know, were, you know, went in search of some cows which they couldn't find. And the meditating girl said, you know, the cows are behind such and such a bush. And, and, so that, and, it, was, and it was just as she had said. No? And so, um, and this then uh, was uh, well amazing you know, to all involved, and so I guess that then you know, triggered her an interest in, in in meditation, and so that you know, she soon became you know, became a nun and so developed uh, uh, psychic abilities, and so I remember one person while I was living in, in Burma, um, one person went to see her together with uh, some American uh, visitor, a man, and some, the nun, I forgot her name, um, and so the nun didn't know the visitor at all, had no knowledge of him at all. And so she would then, um, you know, you know, look at him and so, uh, contemplate a little bit, and so, um, tell him that he had such and such a surgery in this or that place, and it was perfectly correct. And uh, and so that's, uh, that nun, and uh, she's got a big monastery uh, in, in, in Burma, in, uh, or a nunnery, and so uh, has many, uh, many younger nuns with her. No, so there are you know, obviously you know, people who uh, have naturally you know, are you know, gifted or, or talented. No. Okay, then Nicola. You mentioned about the joy. Um, I can't remember the exact concept, but something with Dharma practice being greater than the joy of the worldly um, lives of ordinary folks at some point tonight. Eh? And I was also wondering 
if the dukkha <laughs> also surpasses that of, of ordinary folks up until a point where you get to um, liberation. Oh, well, um, the the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness that comes up in one's meditation practice in the form of bodily pains and aches and very difficult mental states, and at times can be. Uh, quite certainly uh, quite severe uh, no. and uh, maybe uh, even stronger you know, than for some ordinary person you know. um, ordinary person who you know, you know, uses the usual ways of uh, escaping from uh, you know, from, from, from dukkha uh, no. so I would say that um, in the practice, at times, you know, the dukkha you know, will be highlighted. Uh, no. But on a, you know, on a positive note, we have all you know, the, uh, the means or, or the you know, mental uh, abilities you know, to uh, work with and overcome you know, those forms of uh, dukkha. No. And uh, um, even if there's certainly some amount of dukkha in the meditation practice, this you know, should certainly not certainly keep us away from doing the practice. Because in the end, overcoming you know, the dukkha you know, leads to you know, tremendous freedom or you know, liberation. And uh, so the gains, uh, the gain is tremendous. Maybe, see, your question is somewhat difficult to, to answer because you know, for an ordinary you know, non-meditator, all sorts of you know, forms of dukkha are you know, available or, or, or can come up. So if you think of a person who's suffering from some um, terminal illness or so, there's lots and lots of you know, dukkha uh, there. No? Now, what makes the difference is uh, our ability to work with pain and to handle you know, pain or difficult mental states. And it is in this connection that the equanimity counts a lot. And, uh, so a meditator who's uh, uh, worked you know, through pains and aches and worked uh, through difficult mental states and uh, who has you know, developed equanimity you know, will find it relatively easy you know, to you know, handle these. But a non-meditator uh, may have tremendous difficulties. And to, as a case in point, we have a nun in a Burmese uh, uh, nun in Lumbini, Nasyanido Badamanika, and her mother uh, was suffering from cancer. And so her mother was an ardent meditator, or had been an ardent meditator over many years under uh, under Mahasisada and Sadhu Pandita. And so, you know, so she was well familiar with the practice and uh, also well familiar with uh, Dukkha. And when her cancer you know, then developed into you know, the final stages, she was hospitalized. And so 
um, on one occasion uh, where you know, Sadhu Pandita visited her in the, in, in the private hospital and some, you know, the doctors you know, were praising her for saying you know, or saying you know, that they had never seen a patient like this uh, or like, like her who had so patiently and calmly uh, responded in the face of you know, cancer and apparently you know, usually you know, cancer patients you know, they, you know, they suffer tremendously you know, there's apparently there's lots of you know, probably groaning and, and crying and, and, and what not going on and, uh, and when uh, Sandy Dovaramanika's uh, mother passed away, uh, she did so with, uh, you know, with a serene uh, look on, on her face. You know, so the meditation practice is, is a tremendously you know, useful you know, tool um, when it comes to uh, mastering you know, uh, the difficulties of an illness. No. Okay. If there are no more questions, yes, there's one in the back. Who's this? So, or two? Yes. So, then Yona. Yeah. Well, it's not let go of. One develops a, uh, a reasonable you know, relationship to them. But what? the equanimity, the, the imperfection of equanimity, that, that statement is hard for me to understand. Eh? Because it's also, equanimity is one of the um, enlightenment factors that you said is more present. Yeah, right. So, and so I didn't under, I don't understand how equanimity fits into that. Oh, see, no, some of these terms are synonymous. So, um, equanimity uh, comes up as an imperfection of insight, and um, as, as such, it could also be termed as a budding, uh, as a budding enlightenment factor of equanimity. It's the same experience, but different uh, name. So it's a, like, being asked before that the, it's only an imperfection when there's conceit or... Yes. Or right. Yes. Cool, but, okay. I know. And it's not that the equanimity drops away. It's just, you know, with the mature face of uh, the fourth insight knowledge, you know, one... Uh, is no longer uh, under the sway of or influence of this craving, pride and conceit and wrong view. So if equanimity is there, then you're, you're relating it to, to it as a mental factor and that there's maybe a, a weight and a, a weight in that attached to it, but it's not that you're seeing it as a mental factor and not something that you like and want to cling to. Yeah, yeah, right, indeed. You just see it as a mental factor and that's, and that's it. No. Okay, so that's uh, one question. And then the next one. Yes, and I don't know if this is fair for me to Oh, ask Jackie. Hey. Um, when did you become um, interested or introduced to the practice? And um, how long have you been with it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 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 you really want to know. <laughs> oh, well. 
let's keep it short and sweet. Namely, I could go on and on and on and on. Um, actually, it all started at home when I, when I was a high school student. And uh, part of the, the book on Hatha Yoga, uh, there was uh, the last chapter on meditation. It was uh, Hatha Yoga meditation. And the recommendation in there was to you know, set up a candle and light it and then uh, gaze at uh, the flame. So this is what I did, I, you know, just as an experiment. Uh, I didn't know anything about meditation at the time. And so, so you know, I tried it out and uh, found that's re- that it's really helping you know, to calm the mind. And uh, so I kept doing it uh, you know, for, for a while. And uh, then to an extent that uh, at one point, without telling anyone, I skipped school for three days and, <laughs> and meditated all by myself in a, you know, in a separate apartment. We were living in a place where you know, we had sort of access to other rooms. And so I would stay in a separate apartment where no one else, you know, no one else would enter. And so I'd, be, I'd show up for breakfast, I'd show up for lunch, <laughs> but I wouldn't go to school. <laughs> But then after a while my family found out and they didn't like it. And uh, uh, so, um, <laughs> so anyways, um, during the, so I started, basically I started during my high school days and so, um, and then but owing to you know, being ridiculed so the, you know, by my family uh, you know they didn't uh, they didn't understand it and they just saw it as a waste of time and whatnot and you know this is not what we do and so, so then eventually I dropped it and, so, and then followed so what do you what do you think which path the path the path of sin of indulging in sin's pleasures <laughs> So I did this for a while, and then, uh, and then many or a number of years later, um, I ended up in Africa, and uh, you know, doing kind of an internship there with uh, some company. So it was part of my training, and so, so uh, then I remembered my my meditation practice from the high school days, and I continued. So I picked it up again, and so did a little bit of daily practice, and so that was quite uh, quite nice, and. So, uh, it was nice to get into, back into into that rhythm, and so, you know, then let me see, um, and then um, a friend of mine, a fellow you know, a fellow student, uh, recommended you know, that I go and so, attend <coughs> attend a retreat you know, with uh, um, uh, well John. Coleman in the Ubakin tradition. So that's uh, uh, Goenka's teacher was Ubakin. And uh, so I did that in uh, in England. It was my it was my first ever you know, retreat. I'd never done a formal retreat before, and so, well, I liked it a lot. And. Uh, 
and then well then it went on and on and I came actually I came over here to the states and uh, explored uh, you know, spirituality here for uh, for almost you know, two years back then you know, see what happened I wanted to go to India and my mom my mom just said no way you're not going to India <laughs> she had you know she had heard all these terrible stories about uh, Westerners ending up uh, you know, getting into difficulties in India, and so she just was too afraid of it. And so I said, okay, well, if that's what you want, yeah, then I'll go to the to North America instead. We've got relatives here, and uh, and also there, I knew there were you know there are plenty of spiritual communities in North America, and so so then you know, spend time traveling and. Hitchhiking all across you know, the country, including Canada, Canada and Alaska, and so you know, then uh, spending time at uh, you know, some one esoteric place, and then at the San Francisco Zen Center, and then at the, you know, the City of Ten Thousand Buddhas in Talmadge, Ukiah, as a Chinese Buddhist place, and that was probably the most intensive meditation uh, that I've ever you know, experienced, even tougher you know, than this Vipassana year. And at the monastery there, you know, we had to. We went to bed. The last, uh, the last sitting ended at midnight, and so then we had just barely had time to go to bed. And so and so then, what was it? I think wake up was at two thirty, and the first sitting started at three. <laughs> so you can imagine it was really tough. And so the monks and nuns there you know, did it for you know, it was chan chan meditation, and so they did it for for a month at it at a time, and I just wanted to do intensive practice. That was all, and so just intensive practice and so, you know, longer you know, longer retreats. And back then I was really you know groping in the dark, not knowing which way to go. And so, well, so eventually I returned to Europe, and so still not quite so sure in how things certainly would go on. But I did know it would be somewhere along you know, the line of meditation, Buddhist meditation, and certainly then community life, and certain things like this. And then, and then, maybe. Yeah, then together with a girlfriend who was into Tibetan Buddhism, I ended up in India. And so then practicing prostrations and at, well, at Bodhaya. And even doing the whole set of a hundred thousand prostrations. And, so, and then there was a retreat with Christopher Titmus, so I did that, and so that was kind of a turning point. And so with that certain retreat, I knew I didn't want to do the Tibetan practice anymore, all the visualizations and all that. And so instead, it was clear to the past that's the right thing. 
and so on. Then I did one retreat after another, a seven-day retreat with Anagarika Munindra, and then a ten-day retreat with Goenka outside of Jaipur in Rajasthan, and then another ten-day retreat with the assistant teacher of Goenka in Kathmandu, and outside of Kathmandu in Buddha Neokanta, and so and then. And then a retreat with Sadhu Pandita. And back then I had no idea whatsoever who this Sadhu Pandita uh, was. The only thing I knew was he's a famous meditation teacher and uh, he was going to conduct a one-month retreat in Kathmandu and I just wanted to do a longer retreat. That was all. And so I went and it was quite something that retreat. No, no, yeah, well, yeah, for various reasons. Um, it was at uh, the meditation center then, you know, it was still under construction, and so the back then, yeah, it was uh, during July, or what was it, June, June, July, and so it was the beginning of the rainy season, it rained like three, four days non-stop, we had water in the compound reaching up to the knees, and so we had to walk, all, all of the meditators, we had to walk way through the water, I don't know, and then... And there were a number of foreign meditators attending the retreat, and and then the septic tanks started overflowing, and so some of the foreigners saw it, saw that, and then it led to a huge exodus. Like, uh, about 95, 95% of the foreigners left, and so there were only three who remained, and I was one of them. And uh, during that retreat, even Sadhu Pandita ended up uh, with uh, amoebic dysentery. Well, my first interviews with uh, Sadhu Pandita were also something else. Um, so maybe first second interview was okay but I vividly remember one interview I had worked really hard in the meditation practice and so just like all of you trying really hard to observe the rising and falling carefully and to know all these many details and delicacies there and so and then came the next interview and so I reported and Sadhu Panita cut me off and said no this cannot be what you're saying and so, no, go back. That's it. Finished. And I thought, my goodness, <laughs> pretty, pretty tough treatment. And I just reported to him what I had experienced. But apparently, he was misinterpreted it, or saw it differently, or it was my language. Who knows? And so, but anyways, I still uh, continued until the very end, and so at the end or towards the end of the retreat, there was a uh, venerable Nepalese uh, monk, Sadhu Nyanaponika, who had studied in Burma for many, many years with Sadhu Pandita, but also Pariyati uh, studies. So he was translating, and uh, he was the translator for Sadhu Pandita, and he you know, then showed some slides 
of Burma, of the Mahasi Center, uh, main center in uh, Yangon, uh, Burma. And while he was doing this, uh, he said, uh, for anyone who wants to do a longer retreat, this is probably the best center in the world. I just heard that sentence, I knew I was going to go to Burma. And at that time, I did not know where Burma was, and so didn't know how to get a visa, and all, all of these uh, things. And so then I went back to you know, Europe, and you know, applied for you know, for Burmese visa, eventually got one, and then uh, um, entered you know, the country, and it happened to be April, April 1988. And April 1988 was the beginning of the riots in Burma. And there, there were riots in Burma for several months. And so this, those, you know, those were you know, really heavy you know, the riots, you know, more or less across the entire country, and with hundreds of thousands of you know, people involved in demonstrating. And so, so back then, uh, well, we were a group of uh, foreign meditators staying at the Masi Center, and uh, you know, every once in a while, so during the daytime, at nighttime, there were gunshots, and uh, uh, on one occasion, I remember uh, a group at, during the night, a group of uh, men you know, walking you know, down you know, the road, some nearby road, and, uh, uh, and then even chanting anti-government slogans and uh, later on there were some shots and that was it and so it was a really uh, uh, quite uh, quite uh, or a time of great upheaval in in, in Burma and um, and then, when I when I entered the country, I, I entered as a lay person, and I had no intention whatsoever to become a, a, a monastic. And so, but then, um, because of you know, the political situation, you know, the government wanted you know, all the foreigners to leave the country, and so you know, they then um, you know, issued a, a rule saying you know, by you know, the expire with the expiry of one's you know, state visa or state permit, all the foreigners should you know, leave. And so my turn was up in November of that year, and I simply didn't want to go. I just wanted to continue with, you know, with the intensive practice. And so uh, then upon uh, asking around, you know, the uh, then Director General of the Department of Religious Affairs, he recommended, well, why don't you become a, a, a temporary uh, monk? And so, you know, as such, you know, the rule doesn't apply to those, and so, as such, you can stay. And so, so then I proposed or I mentioned this to Sadhu Pandita, and he said just the same thing. And so and then, owing to political reasons, I became a monk. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so, then I was in Rome, and uh, when or before ordaining, I made it very clear you know, that this was only a temporary ordination. <laughs> You know, since you know, since my mother had uh, uh, requested uh, you know, or, or had asked, or I had given her a promise you know, to uh, uh, return 
uh, to Europe uh, whenever she needs some help with her uh, her business. And so, um, so knowing this uh, promise, you know, so I made it very clear that it was only a temporary ordination. And so then after about uh, three months, um, my mother took me up on this, and so, uh, so you know, then I, I disrupted and went back uh, to Europe uh, uh, to help her with her uh, business at the time. And however, you know, that experience of uh, being in ropes for you know, three months overall was positive and not easy but certainly positive and certainly so you know, then uh, while I was back in Austria my mom was working there at the time um, and then you know, I decided that I was going to go back to Burma for a second time and for another longer you know, retreat and this time uh, uh, again you know, taking you know, taking the ropes and so you know, the following uh, the following year or in 1989 um, and then um, I re-entered the country in, in Burma in September and in November you know, took uh, ordination and I've been in Robson ever since so that's 17, 18 years by now I don't know and so most, uh, most of the monastic training was uh, under, uh, under Sadhu Pandita I don't know. In terms of meditation teachers, I've had uh, uh, different uh, ones, but the main uh, the main teacher uh, has uh, always been uh, Sadhu Panita. And then, no, no, well, and then after a period of uh, altogether nine years in uh, in Burma, uh, then one day uh, Sadhu Panita asked me whether I would like to come along to Nepal and serve as his interpreter and so I said yeah well okay why not and so I went and at the time um, well this Panditarama Lumbini International Passamentation Center was under construction and so um, and I liked the place a lot and saw it, and since it was still under construction I saw it as an opportunity to finally get some you know, practice in myself because <laughs> during, you know, during the, you know, the two preceding years you know, at the Semangon you know, Forest Meditation Center in Burma um, together with others we were involved in planning and so, you know, then uh, implementing you know, a new forest uh, meditation center and it was just two years so there was uh, work non-stop and so with less and less and less time for, for practice and so, so then I asked Sadhu Pandita for permission to, you know, to stay for another couple of months and he said yes okay you can and then as that period you know, came to, to an end then I asked for another extension again he gave the permission and then another extension and so in this way you know, uh, a whole year went by and so by the time he came back to you know, Lumbini you know, the following year and that was 1990 wait a minute, 99 I suppose, yeah, 99 by that certain time um, well, uh, the place was already you know, you know getting uh, get, or, or operating to some extent and he was satisfied and he said, okay, you can stay for five years and so by now it's been already nine years over nine years and that's it <laughs>
Say, say, say what? Maybe when another day, would you tell us more about the monastery there? Well, well, a little bit. I don't want to talk too much, otherwise it will get flooded with meditators. But. This much I can say, it's a nice, it's a nice place for, uh, for intensive long-term practice. And, uh, How many meditations are there just now? How many do we have right now? Uh, right now, well, oh, Sialido Badamanika, the Burmese nun whom I mentioned earlier on, she's, uh, she sent an email the other day saying, uh, and up to that point there were eight, and then six left, so two are left, uh, and suddenly another one was expected to come. But uh, the numbers go up and down, so uh, in the winter, usually our uh, largest number of meditators we have uh, in the winter, so you know, from about, so let's say, beginning beginning October until end of March, uh, so fall, winter, you know, spring, and uh, during that period maybe on the average about 18 to 20, sometimes a little bit more, 21, 20, it's family style. And, uh, okay, maybe you know, this much for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.